Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. So I've talked about it before, but uh, when I graduated from college, I worked for Hillstone Restaurant Group, and the management program was a rotational kind of thing. So they moved me from Boston to SF to Dallas to Houston, all in like a two-year stretch. And when I moved to Houston, I really fell in love with the restaurant scene here, not just because it was super vibrant with amazing ethnic restaurants as well as really inventive chefs, but I also fell in love with it because it was just a very collaborative city. There was just this camaraderie within the Houston restaurant community that I didn't find as much in Dallas for sure. Uh, no shots at Dallas because uh, it's obvious which one of us is the better city. And no shots at San Francisco because obviously that's an amazing city. But just I think maybe the size, the relation, maybe the slight chip on the shoulder that Houston had I don't know what it was, but there was just this really nice community building thing that was going on here. Uh, and obviously, a lot of that's been lost with the pandemic. Uh, there's been no shortage of restaurant openings and closings, and there was no one better for me to talk to about that stuff than Eric Sandler, the editor of Culture Map here in Houston. Eric writes about the Houston restaurant scene extensively, so I wanted to get his perspective. I wanted to get that 30,000-foot view from the media's perspective on how restaurants have kind of adapted to all of the new systems in place because of the pandemic. We started by talking about his food podcast called What's Eric Eating? Here he is. What have you been up to this week? Just working away. Always busy. You release your episodes for your podcast on Wednesdays? No, Thursdays. So uh, the new one came out today. Do you always record like the day before? Like you're in a studio normally when you record, right? Well, we were in a studio until the pandemic and now we record them over zoom but yeah no we we started recording them on mondays because that was it worked for the producer in the very beginning and so yeah typically we record on mondays and they come out on thursdays yeah the logic was uh if people want to listen to the restaurants of the week segment maybe get inspired for someplace to go for the weekend the pandemic has sort of changed the the logic of the whole thing i'm afraid it's changed the logic of a lot of different things i'd reckon but that's, that's certainly true well, it's great to have another elite podcaster on, on, on <laughs> by the glass. Yes, my my hundreds of listeners will be uh, oh a big boon to you, Eric. You are one of the lead. Um, I I know you don't call yourself a restaurant critic, but you write a lot about restaurants. I would say that you probably dine out more than most Houstonians, which says something because Houstonians love to dine out. I think there's that old adage that Houstonians don't know how to cook, right? That we dine out more or we have more restaurants than any other city in the United States per capita or some, some statistic like that has been bandied about before. Yeah. I've always been a little bit skeptical of that statistic. I wonder if it includes, you know, fast food restaurants and taco trucks and, and all that kind of stuff. But yes, we are, uh, it was once reported and I don't know if it's still true that we are the most dining out city that we eat out the most times per week per capita, which of course, again, with everything else has probably changed some, you know, since whenever that was compiled and certainly in the last year. Yeah. I mean, this year's definitely changed that, but there's definitely a lot of things that are still opening, right? I mean, it seems as if you're always posting about new places that have opened up in town and it seems like there's no shortage of them. It seems like there's still lots of places that are 
either in the process of opening or have opened amidst COVID, right? No, I'd say that's correct. Yeah, we sort of took a break, right, from roughly March until July or August when when not really anything of that was sort of high profile opened. And then mm. we had a, you know, maybe a little bit slower than normal, but like a pretty normal fall in terms of a bunch of new places opened, uh, many of them really good. And it's incredible to see how people have adapted to all these restrictions that are in place to limit the spread of COVID, but they're still open and operating and, and filling their dining rooms within the limits of what they're allowed to operate at. I mean, within the limits, I think is a relative term. It seems like everyone is kind of figuring out the right balance, right? I mean, you could be allowed to have 75% of your dining room full, but how are you going to actually get 75% in there, right? Well, right. When you're required to keep six feet between tables or to put up screens, getting you know, the difference between 50% and 75% is probably relatively meaningless for most people, but you can seat your patio. And, and again, I think the, the creativity and the ingenuity that we've seen is, is pretty remarkable. Well, I feel like that's part of what I'm hoping to get out of this conversation is you, I think, can give listeners kind of a little bit of kind that like big picture understanding of what's going on in the Houston restaurant scene at the moment, because for years and years, Houston had been going through this kind of like long gestation of promoting itself as like the food city in the United States. And it had been a long game of, you know, lots of press, lots of, you know, coverage, you know, eventually the James Beard, like doing a whole like Texas kind of segment, right? There had been lots of media on the city. We got that big boost after the Super Bowl in whatever that was, 2017. It just seems like this was a long time coming for us. And now with the pandemic, I think every city is feeling the effects of it. And I'm just curious, kind of from your perspective, your take on a lot of that stuff. So maybe we can start with just kind of hearing about how you spent that first month, like middle of March through middle of April. Like for a guy that at that point had been dining out, like for a lot of his meals, like where did you... Did you immediately start, did you bust out your copy of Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything and just start cooking for yourself? I mean, what was the vibe? No, I mean, you know, I live by myself. I think cooking for one is a drag and I'm not very good at it. You know, I can. What's you know, your go-to dish? What do you make? I mean, you know, I can, I can boil a, you know, I can boil a batch of spaghetti and, and heat up a jar of sauce, man. That's about, that's about the extent of it. Uh, you know, I can. You know, if I have a grill, uh, you know, I can make myself a burger or a steak or something like that. So I, I'm not, I'm not completely bereft, but I'm certainly not, uh, I'm not very accomplished. That's not where my focus is. You can boil water. That's pretty good. Yeah. 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 I can, it's a start, right? No, it's, uh, you know, for me, you know, I moved to, to take out, you know, and, and, and I knew that these restaurants were going to be struggling and I wanted to support them. So, you know, the places in my neighborhood that I've, I've always supported, were the places where I, you know, I'd get in my car and I'd put my mask on and I'd get curbside or I'd, you know, walk in just long enough to get a to-go bag. And I've done some delivery, but yeah, I mean, that was kind of my immediate focus. I mean, again, it's as much, you know, I, I eat out professionally and I also eat out as my sort of primary means of social interaction. So it was, that first month was pretty lonely because we were all, we didn't really know, we didn't fully understand how the virus spreads, right? We were all you know, scrubbing every surface and 
we didn't we didn't sanitizing my paper towels yeah. making sure that i don't catch it off of you know paper towel or anything like that right. it was a wild time for right. sure microwaving your mail i mean you know all these different things and we didn't understand the difference between sort of indoor transmission and outdoor transmission and, and all that so once we got more of a handle on how the virus spreads and and what we can do to sort of limit our exposure a switch to outdoor dining even you know even in the texas summer you know even in the heat or or just trying to be really strategic about you know we'll go out you know let's go out to lunch when it's not quite as hot order a little extra and then that way i have leftovers for dinner or, or the next day you know let's go to dinner maybe not at maybe maybe not at 6:30 like maybe let's go to dinner at 8:30 or 9 and really try to take advantage of you know balancing out dining safely with like not sweating through the whole meal. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I talk to a lot of my friends that are in the Northeast or something like that. And it, it's really the inverse patio season, right? That we're right now having that perfect patio weather. I mean, today we're not, it's, it's Thursday and it's raining out, but you know, earlier this week and last weekend, it was just gorgeous. And this is the time of the year when people in New York, you, you saw the same photos I did when they got that horrible snowstorm. And people were outside and snow was accumulating on their patio table. But here in Texas, this is the time of the year when we do want to be outside. In the months of April, pretty much April and May, that was kind of the extent of our patio season before things really got super hot. Yeah, but again, you know, restaurants have adapted. You know, right now they have heaters going. In in the summer, they'll have fans going and misters. I mean, they're, you know, they're trying to make it as comfortable as they can. And and what I saw was that, for the most part, diners were showing up. Again, like you said, you know, maybe people just don't like to cook in this town, or maybe they were tired of their cooking, uh, you know, after a couple of months of being locked down. But they, the, the heat was not a deterrent. Rain is definitely a deterrent. You know, nobody wants to get rained on while they're eating. But heat, heat by itself is not a, uh, w- 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 didn't necessarily stop people. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, did you see anyone that had like created really inventive sorts of patios or done anything really interesting to kind of accommodate the amount of outdoor seating that was required? Well, I mean, we have seen some people sort of claim parts of their parking lot, right? Yeah. Like, um, you know, one fifth Chris Shepard's restaurant, you know, squared off like a, a pretty decent sized chunk of their, of their parking lot and turned it into a, and a patio because they didn't have any outdoor seating. And, yeah. and there's other places that have done that too. But, you know, I think that's like the first, that's been kind of the first step for people is, is creating patio where there wasn't patio. Yeah. I think Anvil did a really good job with that too. Uh, oh, having that little space. Yeah. So that's one thing was creating that level of like outdoor seating. But in terms of interior, I've talked to a couple of guests on the pod in the past about it. Uh, Chris Wynn is someone who, you know, who helps design interiors for lots of different people. He's worked with David Buer, with Greenway Coffee. He's worked with Justin Yu. He's worked with a variety of different people. But Chris Wynn was talking about the community table and how it might go the way of the dodo bird. I mean, all of these restaurants, I think, for so long have utilized banquet seating, you know, communal tables, like extended benches. How... How have you seen that kind of like adjust at all the different restaurants that you've been to? Well, I mean, you're right. I mean, certainly community tables are not a reality right now. I, I mean, what I have been interested in is there's a couple of uh, tasting menu type restaurants that have opened and, you know, you're sitting around a central counter 
and they'll put partitions up between the different groups. So, you know, every two seats or every three or four seats, there's a separate screen up. So then it's, you know, you're not separated from the, from the other people in the room, but, but at least you've got some, some protection, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I know that Handy's Duozo, the handrail joint in the Heights, they have that set up going. Um, what what places are you thinking of that do that? Well, Handy's is one of them, and and I actually I really like their setup. I think it's it's kind of the only way that that counter seating works in our current environment. But uh, there's a couple of newer places that have opened up too: Hidden Omakase, uh, Billy Kin's new sushi restaurant, and then De Goost, uh, Brandon Silva's tasting menu restaurant that just opened uh, like a week ago. Again, you know, they have those partitions up. So it's funny you mentioned that those are like tasting menu restaurants. Cause I felt like we were already moving away from the idea of a tasting menu. I remember when pass and provisions, you know, which had won that 2012 or 2013 Bon Appetit top 10 best new restaurant. When the pass finally closed it felt like we were closing the chapter a little bit on tasting menu restaurants, which was reflective of what was going on across the country, right? People were dining out for shorter stretches of time. People wanted more autonomy over what they were eating. They didn't want to necessarily be told, this is exactly what I'm going to have tonight. It's interesting that, you know, I don't know whether the pandemic is hastening that, um, but it sounds like these are two new places that opened up that are doing, whether it's omakase or just like chef's tasting menu. I don't know. It's, I would imagine that people don't want to be inside longer than they have to at a time like this, you know, and people in general do seem to want a lot of control over their meal. Where, where, where are you on that? Well, I, I don't think you're wrong about that, but I, I do think there's another sort of side of this, which is that people aren't going out as often. And so when they do go out, they want it to be special. They want it to be an experience and there really is nothing quite as special as having the, you know, being one of, at Hidden Omakase 14, at Degus 20 people in the room and having a team of chefs like fussing over every individual course and, and plating them right in front of you and, and serving it to you directly. So I, I, I mean, I, I know that those things are, are in competition with each other, but, but these restaurants are so small that, I, I mean, I think maybe that's the other thing is that, you know, you're not, you're not in a room with, a hundred other people you're in a room with a, a dozen or, or two dozen. And, and so you do feel a little more comfortable about kind of where you're sitting. That's fair. I mean, when you dine out, do you do a lot of people watching or like where, where is your mind at when you're normally at all these different spots? I do some, I, well, you know, I do people watching in the sense that I'm, I'm trying to gauge what the service experience is like uh, for people who aren't in the media right? Like you, you know, I don't have authentic service experiences. So when I'm looking at the room, I'm trying to see how the staff is interacting with the tables around me. Not that it's going to be entirely consistent um, with my experience, but, but just that like, hopefully it's not radically different. You know, hopefully it's, it's somewhat uh, replicated. I, I got to imagine that you've seen some wild shit over the past, like 10 months, like being at a restaurant, you've, bound to have like encountered a couple of Karens in some of these places, you know, you know, any, any crazy horror stories, nothing, nothing that you've seen that's gone too crazy. I have not seen anything super crazy. I, you know, I've seen kind of the normal bad behavior, right? People who don't want to put on a mask when they're like, if they get up to go to the restroom, you know, or people who get kind of drunk and are 
you know, huddling, huddling around each other, like taking pictures. I, I, you know, I've seen, but, but like the straight up, like temper tantrum. No, I, I haven't personally seen that. And mm. I'm hoping that means you haven't been to Spire yet is what you're saying. No, I have you... not been to Spire or clay. There are places I won't go. Right. Like I, like I'm not going to bottle blonde. Right. Like I have, I have no interest in going to that restaurant, I, I guess, you know, so maybe like, maybe I'm just not going to the places where the really bad behavior is occurring. That's fair. I mean, but in general, when you're out and about and you see people dining, you get the sense that people that are out are out to some degree to celebrate, right? Like you you were saying that nowadays people are probably dining out less than they were before. I mean, anecdotally, I've gotten that exact same information from some of my buddies that are servers. One of my buddies was saying that, you know, at the restaurant he works at, which is Uchi, like, it used to be one in three groups was celebrating a special occasion. Now it's closer to two out of three. Yeah, well, and and weekdays are really slow, right? You yeah. don't have that business dinner expense account kind of thing going on. And so, you know, the weekends might be, you know, reasonable in terms of the turnout and the cover counts and and all of that. But but that, you know, that that Tuesday, that Wednesday night crowd, like that's just not really happening right now. The other thing I was thinking about is just the fact that, you know, I'm wondering whether we're moving away from chef-driven concepts and whether we're moving more towards just like easy, approachable, counter-service style establishments, right? Because in terms of what's more expensive to run and operate, right? Operations costs are incredibly high for these high-touch restaurants where, you know, courses are coming out more slowly you know, you need more service staff. I wonder whether we're going to see a movement towards just more casual counter service joints or whether, you know, since people are dining out as a special occasion, the movement is towards, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it. We're going to do full on chef driven experiences versus customer oriented experiences. If you had to draw that line between the two. You know, I, I mean, I think the trend towards you know, more casual counter service quicker has been going on in the industry since before the pandemic. And this has really only accelerated it, right? Because there's so much, there's so much less expensive to operate. And even more importantly, um, they require like less contact, right? So, you know, you can, you know, you go up to the counter and you order and they drop the food and that's, that's it, right? You, you don't, yeah you're not checking with the table, you know, three or four times. So from a staff perspective, I think it's maybe a little safer um, and certainly less expensive to operate. But yeah. on, on the other hand, you know, there's, there's no doubt that the hottest restaurant that opened in 2020 is, a, you know, a fine dining French influenced restaurant where dinner, dinner can run 150, $200 a person. So that's Blue Dorn, right? That that's you're talking right. about? Yeah. No? It's not the cheesesteak place. No, that's uh, uh, the cheesesteak place is Lefties. That's uh, you're not referring to Lefties. I'm not referring to Lefties. You're not. Lefties. You're not racking up a two hundred dollar tab of the finest cheesesteak paired with a nice burgundy. That's not the. That's not the vibe. Uh, you know, it might be BYOB. So if you have that bottle of burgundy. You can you can accommodate yourself. I'd probably bring in a big sexy bottle of Zinfandel and get nasty <laughs> with it. What goes with hot Cheetos? Because that's one of the things they top the cheesesteaks. Uh, 
I would probably bring in a sparkling Chenin Blanc, maybe maybe a pet nat. Uh, that would be a good option. There you I, go. I think something like that, something zippy and bright. Yeah, something with some acidity. That's the other thing I'm thinking about is there were so many restaurants that were adamant, like we don't do to go food. We don't, you know, accommodate this or that. And certainly the customer is not always right. But there are specific instances where people realize that maybe they were leaving money on the table, that maybe there is the opportunity to bring in some added revenue by bottling your cocktails or by offering certain items to go, things like that. Well, right. And there are some dishes that just like don't really, you know, nobody wants, uh, you know, tuna crudo to go. You know, nobody wants raw oysters. I would to say go. like French fries are the thing that, yeah. No, French fries yeah, are the worst, tough. right? Because they get soggy. That's always the worst. What would really bother me is when French fries would be packaged to go and like sealed shut in those plastic containers. So they're just steaming in there. If you're going to do French fries to go or something like that, put them in a paper bag and leave it open so that I can just like eat them on my drive back to my house, you know? No, exactly. That, that is exactly what French fries are for. They're for eating on the drive home. That's your, that's your reward for leaving the house. I'm curious, for, for a guy that dines out at restaurants relatively frequently, like what precautions are you taking? Like what are you doing throughout the summer and fall as cases were kind of going up to kind of like keep yourself safe? Well, I, so I think the, the biggest thing that, that I've done and that, that friends of mine has done is, is, you know, you have to take responsibility for your own health. And so, like I was saying, like, there's places that I just won't go to because I don't feel good about their procedures or, or, you know, maybe I just don't feel good about the other people dining around me. Yeah. You know, I, I'm trying to be, I'm, I'm trying to go to places where, you know, I know them. Um, I know that they take this stuff seriously. I know that they're concerned about the health of their staff, like more than, you know, more than the guests. Right. Cause I, I, I think that's kind of the, you know, if they, if they care about the staff, then, then protection for the guests, I think will naturally follow. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, like I'm mostly outdoors, you know, but some, some indoor dining, like some of that's just inevitable for me, especially, um, and, and, you know, being strategic about, you know, uh, days of the week, times of times of day, you know, uh, you know, taking, taking fewer of those like seven, seven thirty reservations, more of those, you know, five thirty or eight thirty, you know, either before the crowd builds up or after it's cleared out a little bit, you know, just trying to minimize, um, potential contact. No, for sure. I don't know. I mean, what do you think the the role of restaurant criticism is? I mean, I, re- I know you've said before, like, you're not a restaurant critic, but your job is to kind of like help promote new places that are in town. And in a lot of ways, people look to you for like an opinion on a certain establishment. So with so many restaurants kind of like struggling to get heard in, in, in this really challenging time, like, what do you feel like your job is in all of this? Well, so I will say, you know, my, I mean, my, my professional title is food editor and, and really the reality you is edit the food. Yes, that's right. But the reality is that my job has always been more reporter than critic, right? Here's mm-hmm. what's happening. You know, here's what's opening. Here's what's closed, you know, tracking trends, all that stuff. So, I mean, people definitely do want some guy. I think 
more than anything, people want some guidance about what they can expect when they go to a new restaurant. And so it really takes a more limited form of recommending dishes and that sort of thing, right? Like if you go to this place, try the pizza, try the roast chicken, try the steak, whatever. Mm-hmm. And and then the other thing is like just being kind of enthusiastic about the good stuff. You know, when you when you encounter something that's special, especially when it's like a new place or or a startup or whatever, you know, not being afraid to sort of shout from the rooftops about how good something is because you know, everybody needs support right now and and I do have this platform and I I do I do want to see people do well in general. It's tough though, right? Because I think that that category of people that are going to a place simply because it's new, especially if people are dining out less than they were before, people are kind of going just to their like tried and true core establishments. It's harder to develop that core base of regulars or just bring new people in the door if people are only going to be dining out once a month or twice a month or once a week. You know, you're going to, for that one meal, choose to go to the place that you know is going to be good. I don't know. I would think that at least in my own experiences, right? Well, sure. I, I, again, I think, I think that's, I think there's definitely a segment of the dining public where, you know, if they're eating out at all, they're going to support that local favorite, you know, and they'll, they'll either get takeout from there or they'll eat there, you know, a couple times a month. But I mean, you know, the, People, Maybe I'm the exception, right? Maybe well, the I, I mean, it, there's just there's a spectrum, right? Yeah. There's there's people yeah. who are relatively unconcerned and feel safe dining out, and you know this is still a this is still a great time to eat out in, and so they do, you know, they do want to go to the new places, they do want to see what's going on. So hmm. you know you you know it's it's easy to sort of assume that everyone has the same attitudes about this, but you, you know there's a I just used the word once already, but there's, there's a range of responses and, and people are sort of doing what they think is best. That's fair. Um, I'm thinking about all of these really nice touch points that restaurants used to put a lot of effort and care into. And I'm wondering how many of those are going to fall by the wayside if a guest isn't able to experience them with a mask on or with socially distanced spaces I'm thinking about, you know, the restaurant that works so hard to make sure that you can smell the freshly baked bread or, you know, the place that chooses to have vinyl records playing rather than just like a music soundtrack. Things that maybe cost a lot of money, but they felt like added to the overall experience. And when all hospitality establishments or most at least, um, you know, are hemorrhaging so much cash and you're not able to fill the space and create that exact experience are there any are there any places that you think have found like really inventive and fun ways to you know make that person feel special inside of the space beyond making them feel safe you know but have been able to find some new way to connect with people well i i mean i think there are places you know especially at the high end that are still really focused on that like luxurious experience you know the table side presentation or the that table side baked Alaska at Blue Dorn. There we go. Uh, yeah, or that lobster pot pie that they, you know, open up for you and shave shave truffles on. I mean, that's a that's a big one. You know, I was thinking about um, there's another fine dining restaurant, Turner's, that opened 
uh, in the summer and they have a, a table side wedge salad where they, they roll out a cart with a giant slab of bacon and they cut that in front of you and they slice the blue cheese in front of you. And, you know, it's this really it's decadent, it's, it's a really decadent wedge, you know, should you pay $20 for a wedge salad? I don't know, but if, if you're going to, it should be that one. <laughs> That's probably the most expensive salad in the city. What are other things that you'd want listeners to know about the Houston dining scene? Either things that have changed or things that have stayed like from your perspective, what stands out? Well, I, I mean, I've, I've talked about this already, but I, I think what stands out is the, the ingenuity and the adaptability, right? You know, a lot of these restaurants didn't do to go a year ago and now they've all had to figure it out, you know, and it takes all these different forms, right? It's, it's ready to eat items. It's take and bakes. It's, you know, you can buy, you know, pizza dough, like pizza kits, right? Dough and cheese and toppings and bake your own pizzas, which I know is, is really popular, especially for families with kids. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that's the one thing that's been, sort of the most impressive. And and the other thing is, you know, our experience in Houston is very different than the experiences on the East and West coast, because, you know, we opened up relatively quickly and, you know, because of the political realities in Texas, like we're not going to shut down again. So, yeah. you know, in some ways our restaurants- You don't think that Lena is going to pull the plug? You don't think she's going to- Well, the there's a- just- there's a state court that ruled that she doesn't have the authority to exceed the limits set by Governor Abbott. Mm. So, uh, and uh, Governor Abbott apparently has, seems like he might have some aspirations for running for president in a few years. And and if he, uh, if he, if he shut us down again, that that would be a very tough sell to Republican primary voters. So, mm. you know, keeping our restaurants open, keeping the economy open is, is a political priority for him. So, I think in some ways Houston restaurants have it a little easier than their counterparts in other parts of the country. And so I, I do think that's why places have continued to open. And, you know, we, you know, we're about to get two new restaurants uh, in the museum of fine arts that are, you know, they're not, they're not going to be here full time, but they're these two New York chefs um, that are going to lead them. And, you know, those, their restaurants in New York aren't open right now. So, you know, for, from their perspective, this opportunity to, to open something new and, and connect in a new city is, is a big deal for them. Well, maybe you can give me some of your MVPs, like people that really, you know, you thought crushed it in 2020 or even now in the start of 2021. Sure. Um, you know, I think, I think one of the sort of the trends that I've been really enjoying are all these little startup food businesses that have popped up. So I've been getting underground creamery ice cream and what's the deal with that guy? Like, I feel like he came out of nowhere. He came out of nowhere. He was a guy who was literally making ice cream for friends and family in his apartment. He developed a following. He got recruited into a commercial kitchen and now he's this Instagram sensation where he sells, you know, 250 pints of ice cream a week online and in less than five minutes i mean it's it's this unbelievable sensation what what's been like your favorite ice cream flavor you've gotten from him so he makes different coffee ice creams using beans from tenfold coffee in the heights yeah so i'm i mean coffee ice cream is kind of a a personal favorite of mine so all of his coffee ice creams are fantastic and you know Hmm. they the the components uh so i think the the new one or the the one that that's currently in my freezer that I'm trying to make last a little bit 
has like uh, speculus cookies and some sort of crunchy element, you know, I mean, basically yeah. it'll be, there'll be like a base flavor, like chocolate with some sort of, sometimes a baked element, like, you know, cookie or cake or something. Yeah. And then like a swirl. So like caramel or marshmallow mm-hmm. fluff or whatever. So hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, he's, he's obviously very influenced by like salt and straw, but mm-hmm. yeah, those ice creams are fantastic. You know, and I've been eating focaccia from Sasha Grumman, who was at Rosalie. Um, I've been kind of obsessed recently with Angie's Pizzas. This chef, uh, Angelo Emiliani, who worked for Chris Bianco in LA for a couple of years and is back home in Houston. So I've seen that being posted. Those are available at um, Eighth Wonder Brewery. Is that where the pickup is or something like that? Yeah. So he's got, so he does sort of wood fired, like Neapolitan style pies at mm-hmm. Eighth Wonder. And then he does like conventional oven Sicilian pies from a commercial space in Montrose. So it just, mm. so the different, so like when he's not at, if he's, if he's not at eighth wonder, like you can order the square pies on his website and pick them up in Montrose. And you just like, that's how all of these people are operating. Um, Sasha's doing it the same way you go on Instagram and through kind of that portal, essentially you get to their website, you go to their Shopify or their square, or whatever account they're using to sell their product. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of those people kind of going independent and doing kind of their own thing without the, you know, four walls of a restaurant. Yeah, I think that's, again, I think that's one of the sort of interesting trends is all these little pop-ups or, you know, startups or whatever you want to call it. You know, I bought I bought all kinds of like cookies and, and other sweets from, from different bakers on Instagram. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it is kind of a fun and, and obviously the startup costs are, you know, the ingredients and the labor and, and just marketing yourself on IG. Right. I mean, all you need is a couple of, of influencers to shout you out and you're off to the races. Yeah. It's interesting to think about, right. I mean, the same thing's going on in, you know, journalism to a degree, right? Like you've got these people that have sub stacks, you know, and now rather than like read their articles on some website, you can just directly support them and their writing. The same is true with, you know, any number of things with Patreon or anything else, right? No, absolutely. That's a, that's a really interesting trend for, for journalists. I mean, you know, the idea that you aren't, that you're directly accountable to your, your readership and not to, you know, a certain number of clicks or, or to an editor or to, or to advertisers or whatever, but then, you know, the reality is that it's a, you have to be a, a very successful writer to have built up the kind of following to really let that like pay your bills. And if you've got, you know, like for someone like me, you know, where I've got a full-time job and, and a regular salary and health insurance and all that, like uh, giving that up and, and, and hoping, you know, hoping that there's, you know, 500 people in Houston that want to pay me 10 bucks a month for <laughs> you know, three emails a week is uh, uh, probably not probably not happening. And your podcast that you do is an extension of culture map, right? That's not like just a solo project. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I I guess, I guess that's fair. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, so culture map is owned by Gal media, which owns ESPN 97.5. And so when I started the podcast, part of the logic of it was that I was able to leverage their production facilities and expertise to get the 
the podcast hosted and produced and yep. and all of that. So I'm uh, I am I am the executive producer of my own podcast, right? But I am not the I am not responsible for the technical production or or making sure it gets posted online every week. That's uh, you're talking to a one man operation on this side. I'm the editor, <laughs> executive producer, host, distributor. Well, you do a great job. Oh, it's 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 very much a bootstrapped operation on this end, but um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about, right? Like that idea of how how that side of things has changed. I mean, you have a more inside look at obviously the way like culture map operates, and you know, I I've seen kind of like your work with them over the past several years. You know, obviously the big thing that you guys do every year is that big culture map, you know, award festival, you know, that gets hosted with lots of different food. Um, this year it got, or I guess last year in 2020, it got delayed until the fall, right? It, it happened in what, September, October? Yeah, uh, August, September, I think. Yeah. And we had to, you know, we had a virtual event. So, you know, you got a, you got to pick up a tasting tote with a bunch of uh, food and drinks in it. And then at a certain time you went online and we recorded a video with Bun B where he uh, rolled out all the winners and everything. There we go. Um, it wasn't, obviously it wasn't the same and it wasn't, you know, the, the really fun party that we've, we've thrown in years past, but I do think uh, for the most part that the feedback was pretty positive and it, it'll, you know, you know, hopefully we get to do it in person this year. I mean, that's the fingers crossed. Well, with your own pod, I mean, you record pretty much once a week. Um, over the course of the pandemic, were there any really rewarding conversations you had, like where for you, you felt like you got a really great perspective as to what that chef was up to, um, or you just got solid feedback from others about it? You know, uh, one of my favorites was Anita Jaisinghani from uh, Pondicherry, hmm. you know, and I, I hadn't really, it's like, I know Anita, but I don't know her well. And I just thought she was so thoughtful about kind of her uh, personal history and and what she's doing and and some of the things she still wants to accomplish in her career. Um, that was a that was a favorite. Um, you know, they man, they they go by so fast. Uh, it's like choosing your children; they're, <laughs> they're all just so good. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know about all. I don't know about all that, but they, you know, the episodes definitely vary in in quality from week to week, but, and, uh, but you know, there's always like, I always have a good time talking to Johnny Rhodes. I always have a good time, uh, talking to Ryan Lashane, you know, I mean, I've, uh, How's Riel doing? How's, uh, Lashane doing over there? What's going on on that end? You know, I think he's doing okay. Relatively speaking. Um, you know, they're about to celebrate their fourth anniversary and, and he's, uh, he's hanging in there. You know, I think, you know, it's not, again, it's not what he wants, but I think, but, you know, that's, that's another person who's really had to, did do to go before, you know, now he does his food to go and he, uh, and he, he started a whole separate concept, this Louis sandwiches that they do mm. uh, yeah. for lunch. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, he's, he's doing the best he can, I'd say. It's, it's funny because you hear from so many chefs that you're just kind of like treading water at a certain point and you're just like waiting and waiting for things to pick up again, right? Or for there to be another round of, you know, stimulus packaging or something like that, right? 
And now with a new administration, like hopefully we see some like real meaningful like development on all this. But I don't know. I mean, it's just it feels like everyone's just been treading water for so long. I mean, I think you're right. I think the new administration and, you know, Democratic majorities, no matter how slim in both houses of Congress, does really open up the possibility for uh, more economic relief. I mean, they passed another round of PPP in December, so hopefully that helps a little bit. You know, I mean, the the restaurant industry was lobbying for this Restaurants Act that would have some specific provisions that that didn't make it out in December, but maybe we've got another another yeah, shot at it this time. Hopefully we get that through. That would be rad. Right. Um, and then obviously the vaccine, right? I mean, you know, yeah. the distribution hasn't been as speedy or as, as smooth, but I mean, I know people who are, who have received it uh, and, you know, eventually, hopefully it'll, it'll roll out into a, a broader distribution and, and then we can all feel a little more normal again. I'm here for that. Uh, anything else you want to let people know before I let you go? Anything you want to plug? Any shout outs? No, I mean, you know, like you said, uh, What's Eric Eating? My podcast comes out every Thursday. Uh, and like I like I say at the, the end of my show, you know, keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. So Awesome. Cool. This was great. Eric, thank you so much. Chris, thanks for having me. This was fun. That is our show. Thank you so much for listening. You can listen to every episode of By the Glass ever recorded by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, wherever you stream this stuff. And give it five stars. Write a review. It helps new people find the show. So, uh, yeah, thanks so much for listening. Really appreciate it. And we'll see you next week with another episode of By the Glass.